Welcome to the Resilient Life Hacks podcast. Join host Liz Myers and her guests as they explore resiliency through the lens of personal stories. Tune in weekly for inspiration and doable life hacks to overcome adversity and thrive in life. The opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by guests of this show are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of Elizabeth or Resilient Life Hacks Ministries. Welcome back to the Resilient Life Hacks podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Myers, and my guest with me today is Carrie Portell. She is the author of Choosing to Face Life Head On, Healing with Courage, Gratitude, and Attitude. And she has an incredible story of resilience and overcoming a very traumatic accident. So thank you for coming to our show today. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm very interested to hear more of about your story and the incredible resilience that you've displayed. So can you take us back to that, that time and tell us uh, what happened and how you were able to pull through that? Sure, sure. So um, 10 years ago, this past December, my middle two children and I were driving into town around 6.20 in the evening when we were hit head on by a drunk driver. And um, I don't really recall there being four vehicles involved. I thought it was just, you know, us and the impaired driver, but we were the second one in line, but we had the most impact with him and the impaired driver uh, passed away on impact and pretty much everybody else was okay, except for the ones um, of us in my car. So my daughters had moderate injuries that they were able to recover in about six weeks, but mine were really severe. They, they ended up being disabling. It took me four years total to, I guess, recover to the point that my doctor said, okay, you know, we need to stop for a while. There's really nothing more that we can do right now. Just kind of see how things go. And if you need to come back, um, you know, go ahead and, and come back. And of course I've been back many times. I've, I've had 13 surgeries total. Uh, three on my pelvis and 10 on my ankles. And those are the three worst injuries that caused me that disabling status. Wow. That sounds really scary and painful. And I, I was recently in a, a car wreck, not that bad, but I, my first thought was, I'm so thankful my children weren't with me. So, I mean, the first thought I have, not that I'm not sympathetic to your suffering, but is for, for your girls. So I'm glad to hear that they were we're okay yes. after that. That's got to just be really painful and difficult, I think, to be suffering so much yourself and still want to be mom to your girls. Oh, yes. I struggle with that. Um, even today, it's like the one thing that still hurts my heart so much is because for four years, the only thing that I was doing was having surgeries and healing. And like all the attention was constantly on mom, you know, and like, um, trying to decrease the amount of pain that I was in, in. And at that point in time, we had four kids and they are just one right after the other in age. And it just, it stole so much time mm -hmm. from us. Um, you know, I, I didn't get to be the mom that I felt that I should get to be. And then on the other side of that, I feel like my kids, they just didn't get the mom that they were supposed to have during that time. And, you know, you can try to make it up all, all you want, but I mean, reality is you just, you can't, get that time back. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's a real loss in many ways. Did your, were your daughters or, or your other children, did they kind of step in and fill some roles that you had before? Or did anyone oh, kind they of be definitely become did. mother to the, to the yeah. others? <laughs> yeah. Saturdays become, okay, it's time to like clean the rooms, clean the house. You guys are going to have to learn how to do your own laundry and 
it didn't matter if it came out right or mm-hmm. not. At least it was washed. You yeah. know, you just, you, you start accepting things for at least things are done, that type of thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, there was, um, I couldn't really walk for such a long time. Mm-hmm. And so I would ask, you know, Hey, can you bring me this? Because it took so much energy for me to try to get up and get my wheelchair. And then there was sometimes I just, I couldn't even get in my wheelchair. So they kind of had to to step up and say, yeah, you know, I can bring you this, I can bring you that. Hey, can, you know, do the laundry today, that kind of thing. So it was, Mm -hmm. it was definitely a a point in time where they had to go, oh, you know, mom's Mm -hmm. not going to be here to take care of us the whole time. We're going to have to do some of this. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, had hip surgery last year and my younger kids in particular were excited to oh, bring mommy's ice pack or help her with her crutches or whatever. But that was just a really short-term temporary thing. And yeah. uh, so it was a novelty for them. It wasn't like, this is our new normal right. kind of situation. New normal. Yeah. How, how long did you stay in the hospital, you know, following the crash? I realized you had to go back multiple times for surgeries and stuff, but that initial stay yeah. Weeks? Initial stay was only 10 days. Um, oh, wow. it, it surprised me. Yeah. But you know, like insurance likes to kick you out as soon as possible, but mm-hmm. I was right back there in two weeks, um, with another surgery. And I, I think I had to stay two or three days for that. And, um, gosh, that first year, I think I had maybe five or six surgeries. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, the staff and I became very, very good friends. You know, we were definitely mm-hmm. on a first day basis. Yeah. Yeah. So did it just like shatter the bones in your legs and it did. Yeah. My things back together. Yeah. My lower legs, ankles were the ones that were shattered. And then my, my pelvis was split and it just would not heal correctly. Mm. Um, So we had to do, you know, three surgeries on that. And I, I think we're done with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So another fascinating thing about you is you're a a cattle farmer also, right? People get very confused when I, you know, like after I give my presentation and then I say, well, when I'm not speaking, I'm a cattle farmer. And they're like, now, now say what, what? how do you do that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little more about that and why that's important to you. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we have always been cattle farmers and I had so much physical therapy and my physical therapist said, you know, Carrie, I don't know why you really need to come in here three times a week anymore. You have a farm. I can tell you things to do on the farm that will be just as good as therapy as what you're getting here. And then you don't have to, you know, find a driver to come in three times a week. So that's how it kind of started, um, was a more of a physical therapy. And then the, the more I was able to do, which honestly for the first year was or first two years was very trivial, very trivial. Um, it kind of became this, oh my gosh, I have a purpose again. Mm -hmm. And I realized I was a person that could not go through life without feeling accomplishments. And it became that no, no matter how trivial that task was, I got that sense of accomplishment again. And I was like, oh my heaven. So then it kind of became like an emotional and, and, um, mindful spiritual kind of experience for me where hey this is my thing I get to do this now and and kind of contribute to our family mm-hmm. yeah that's neat we just moved to the country and so we're having our first little experience with sheep and chickens and it's oh, a different yeah. adventure every day <laughs> us not knowing what we're doing and them being so young and 
kind of helpless, but um, I'm sure there's lots of humorous moments. In oh, there. yes. <laughs> yes. It's fun. There's always something crazy going on. Yeah. So how long was it then before you were able to walk again after the accident and how to that whole just like being in a wheelchair and maybe not even knowing if you would be able to walk again. And then yeah. I don't, that just seems like a real emotional roller coaster to me. Yeah, it definitely was an emotional roller coaster. They didn't really know how well I was going to walk at first. We were just going to have to do a trial and error thing. So it was, I think I was in the wheelchair pretty much the first 16 to 18 months full time. And then I got to do part-time wheelchair where I would start walking with a walker or a cane, but I could, I mean, very short distances. So it was maybe like from the living room to the kitchen type thing. Mm -hmm. And then um, at four years, I was, I got to the point that I was finally able to walk without any assistance at all. And still only short distances to this day. I can't walk for long periods of time. I can't walk fast that kind of thing. But um, it, it was definitely that four-year mark whenever I finally got to say, hey, I, I just get to walk with my body. Nothing else mm. helped me. Um, even though it was for short distances, it felt it felt like an enormous success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. How did you deal emotionally and mentally with those times when you were in the wheelchair and you didn't know if you would ever walk again? How, how did you process that without letting that overwhelm your situation. Yeah. I have a lot of people saying, you know, um, how did you control the anger? And, and honestly, I, I never really felt any anger towards what happened because I mean, I don't know, I guess I was just so overwhelmed with trying to feel better <clears throat> that I didn't have enough energy to concentrate on that. Yeah. But I yeah. was so frustrated that at 35 years old, I couldn't just get up and do what I normally do. I couldn't like go outside and do things with my kids and going from such an active status to, I mean, coming to a complete halt. That was the part that frustrated me. My mind still said I could do all these things and it was used to being busy. And then my body wasn't cooperating with what my mind was saying that I could do. And that was the part that was frustrating to me. So I would get frustrated. I would, I would find I was irritable and I couldn't really figure out why until I started really digging into, okay, this is, this is what's going on with you, Carrie. And that being in limbo of, am I going to be able to walk or am I not? I wish it would just hurry up and decide, is it going to be one or the other? Yeah. And taking four years to finally get that question answered. Oh my goodness gracious. That was ridiculous. Yeah, I would be really impatient. <laughs> My yes. husband's in the military and often, you know, we're trying to figure out where we're going to be next year and it could be this or that or that, you know, and I'm like, I don't really care so much which option it is. I just want to know and then I will find the silver lining and whatever right. I'm handed, but I need to, I need to know which it is. And, uh, you know, certainly with something as important as, you know, your own health and being able to walk, I I would really struggle for four years mentally. I think I would struggle more mentally than physically with that. Right. Although and I think that's pain, the truth. Yeah. Chronic pain is no joke itself. That in and of itself is physically and mentally exhausting just to always be hurting all the time. Yeah. And I think that's a lot. Um, like people always think about the physical part of it, but man, that mental part of just trying to stay strong all the time, it, it does wear you out. And it's an everyday process when you have chronic pain. So every day that yeah. you wake up, you're like, oh, okay, today is going to be a good day. I don't care what I feel like. It's going to be good. 
how do you cope with, you know, the hurting all the time with just being in constant pain and all the cert, like you recover from one surgery and then you have to have another, you know, how, how do you get through the physical part of it? Yeah. Every time I have to have a surgery, it's just, it's disheartening because I know it just takes so long to heal and to like you build up to a certain level and you're disappointed that you're going to have to like kind of fall back and work yourself back up again. But the chronic pain part, it's, it's almost like my pain tolerance is at a new level now because Mm. since it's always there, that is my normal now. So even though I lived 35 years without pain, I, now I can't remember a a time when it didn't feel like this. Mm. So like the normal everyday pain just feels normal. It's your new baseline. Yeah. It's my baseline. So whenever either like activity or weather or something like that, or maybe I have like a nerve flare up when that comes and it makes it spike is the time whenever, um, I really have to concentrate and coach myself to say, okay, Carrie, you know, you're going to get through this. You've been through it a million times already. It will be okay. And you, you try to do everything possible to at least take the edge off of it so that you can, you can at least do something throughout the day. Um, but there, there are those days where it is so bad that, you know, I just have to text my husband and say, you know, it's leftovers tonight or something like that, because it's so bad that I can't even, I can't focus. I can't do anything. And I'm just waiting for it to get better tomorrow. Yeah. Do you find things like heating pads or ice packs or essential oils or any other, anything? I feel like those things help. Yeah. Yeah. I have to do That's what I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. The, um, my arthritis doctor actually told me, um, it's terrible for your skin, but you get in as hot a bath as you can possibly stand. And I've noticed that if I don't get it hot enough, it doesn't work. So it definitely has to be at a certain temperature that actually helps me the most with, um, with my pain. And then I do notice that in the evening times, it's almost like my body can tell the difference about what it needs. I'm like, Mm. I feel like I need ice packs tonight. And most of the time that's activity related. So Mm -hmm. if I walk too much, or if I get stuck, like in a store standing in line for too long, that's when I need the ice packs. Um, And I, I honestly don't know if the essential oils work or not, but I put that on like crazy. And, Mm. And I'm a firm believer, like I just do it like a vitamin. Mm -hmm. So every night when I'm sitting in the um, chair, you know, when things calm down, that's when you can really feel the pounding. Mm -hmm. And I just, I am not frugal with it either. Like you got to put enough of that stuff on to soak (laughs) in. So I'm just lathering up and, you know, right now it's just my husband and the dogs. And as soon as I whip that out, they're all like, they're out of the room. They're like, Oh, (laughs) no, so terrible. (laughs) I've been using a lot of peppermint oil lately. So I'm not I don't, I'm not very knowledgeable about essential oils, but somebody uh-huh. told me that that would help with joint pain. And so it does, it does take the edge off of it. So yes. that's, but um, I, I kind of believe too, and to some extent doing what works. And even if it is a placebo effect, I'm okay with that. If I feel better. I, 100% I <laughs> with you. <laughs> I don't necessarily, I, I like science, but I don't necessarily need a scientific explanation if it's working and it's not hurting me. Exactly. But, um, then I'll roll with that. So I was watching a, a clip from a, an episode, I think that's upcoming for you. And, and you were saying in that, that um, like your ankles don't even move. Is that they're, they're always at yeah. the same angle? 
Yep, that's correct. So the final thing to try to decrease my pain was uh, the doctor said the last thing we can do right now is just fuse them. So they're at 90 degrees at all times. And uh, it took a lot of physical therapy to learn how to walk and, you know, look normal. Mm -hmm. So if I walk really slow, most people don't, I even have any idea that Mm -hmm. I have fused ankles. It's just whenever, um, like I don't have great balance, you know, because I don't have that. I can't teeter at all. Mm -hmm. Like if I, if I get to a certain point, it's just, I'm going down. (laughs) So there's no bringing me back. Um, so people know, like if I happen to stumble, it's just part of me having fused ankles. Mm -hmm. Um, if somebody tries to walk too fast and I'm trying to keep up with them, you can definitely tell, but as long as I keep it at a slow gait, I, I mean, I do really well with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Cause you would think that would be like really difficult, if not impossible to walk that way, but obviously you do it quite well. Yes. And I, let me tell you, I was terrified because I was of course started searching YouTube and seeing how people walk. Some people walk great and other people, I was like, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. I can't walk for that the rest of my life. There's yeah. no way. Cause you know, you start limping on both sides and then it starts causing hip problems yeah. and all this other stuff. And I thought, Oh God, I got enough problems mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Cause everything's all connected. Yep. Did yep. you wrestle a lot with forgiving the person that hit you head on? You know, that is a, a big part of what I like to talk about. And um, somewhere around that three month mark, it just came to me like I wasn't angry at him. And again, I think it was because I, I was so overwhelmed with everything else that I just, I didn't have time and the energy to give to that. But I have a very significant moment three months into my recovery where it just came to me. And I said, I am so sorry that you died and Mm -hmm. I don't understand why you did. And I didn't. And I struggled with that a lot. And um, I didn't understand what that feeling was, but when I researched it, it's called survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to find this peace. Like I was so tired of all this chaos going around in my chest and my mind. And it it just came to me. And I, I said out loud in my living room, I'm like, I forgive you. I know you didn't do this on purpose. I know it was not your intention to hurt me. And I forgive you. And at that moment, like this, this heaviness, just this thing fell away from my chest. And I was like, okay, I'm like, I'm done with that. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even have to worry about that part anymore because it just left. Mm-hmm. I, I really like something you touched on earlier when we were on a similar subject, you know, you were saying that you, you just didn't have the energy to give to hanging on to negative mental places. Cause you know, at some point you were just trying to survive and just get through the day. And I think even if we're not in that desperate of a survival situation, holding grudges or being angry or, you know, upset about things that are beyond our control is really just an energy draining thing. (laughs) And I've realized that myself, sometimes I'm not necessarily in survival mode, but something's bothering me. And I just go, you know what? I don't want to waste my energy on that thing anymore. It's not worth it to me. It's not that, that big of a thing. And I'm not, trying to minimize what you went through it anyway. I'm, I'm just applying to my own life. No, no, um, that, it, that's exactly what it felt like. Like I, I can't even dis- describe in words, the amount of pain that I had afterwards. I mean that entire first year. So it was like, it was, I was 
in a, a mode where I was just trying to exist and stay on this earth at one point. And then after that first year, it was like, okay, I, I feel like I can kind of survive now. Like I can, I, I feel like I've moved to a different, different place. So it, it was, and it's, it's like any negative energy that you have in there, you do just feel like it, it's exhausting you. And then you start to see that reflect in the people around you. And, you know, people, they don't gravitate towards negativity. They're like, Ooh, I kind of want to stay away. So on my days where I was struggling some, I could see that it was hard on my family. And I would just try to stay quiet. Cause I'm like, there's no good that's going to come out of you trying to like work it out in the open mm-hmm. and because it usually comes out as attacking, you know, someone and they didn't have anything to do with this. It wasn't mm-hmm. their fault at all. Mm-hmm. You just, you needed to do something with it. And yeah. that's, I did struggle with that a little bit. Cause I'm like, I just don't know where to go with all of this that's going on in my, my chest. Mm-hmm. Were, were you able to get like counseling or, you know, a, a, just Dis, not disinterested third party, but what's the word? Neutral. Right, yeah, a I neutral person to, to. I did to have, um, I talked to my priest quite a bit, but like 10 years ago, virtual counseling, I, at least I didn't know about mm-hmm. it. Then I don't think it was really much of a thing. So I didn't actually get to go to a counselor. I wish I would have gotten to go, mm-hmm. but I couldn't drive for yeah. so long that it was, it was so hard to get somewhere. Um, and, you know, with everybody working or living far away, that was difficult. So what I actually ended up doing was journaling. And I mean, I would just write furiously in my journal and that's how I ended up getting it all out of me because I knew I could say anything that I wanted to in that journal and it wouldn't hurt anybody's feelings. I just needed to get it out of my chest. So that's what I ended up doing. Yeah, that's very powerful. And I think, you know, for you to have that self-awareness and the self-discipline to say, I realize when I'm this way, it hurts my family. I'm not going to do it. You know, that's, that's really quite an accomplishment. (laughs) Most of us don't have that level of self-awareness, but um, I think that's a good thing to remember too, on the flip side, because a lot of times somebody might react in an irritated way towards us, but it has nothing to do with us. Just like you said, they're, they're carrying some other burden that we don't know. And so I think that's just why we need to, to be gracious towards each other. Just yeah, whatever. I, we all need grace. Yeah, we do all need grace. And that, um, I have learned so many lessons from this experience. And that was a huge lesson that I learned because I would always take offense when somebody would like, it would, it would come out like as a snappy remark mm-hmm. or something. And now I just kind of lean back and I'm like, you know what? I didn't have anything to do with me because I, I just interacted with this person. So whatever happened before was that, you know, so I just, I'm like, man, people had to have granted me grace so many times where I didn't mean for it to come out like that. I just, I was so full of angst or, you know, frustration. And for me, it's been a real growth point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, that's a, a, a positive thing. I think for us to all keep in mind, whether we're in a rough place or we're dealing with other people who may be, um, you know, everybody has something going on. Everybody has some backstory or some brokenness and we usually hide it instead of showing it. So I think just being aware that something's there and we need to treat each other gently is, is helpful. Right. Yeah. And it will come back to you. I mean, it always comes back, mm -hmm. you know, and and that's what I keep thinking. Um, I don't need repaid. I just need 
I, I feel like I need to pay everything forward is what I'm mm-hmm. doing. So, you know, mm-hmm. all those people who granted me grace at that point, I'm just like paying it forward. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the strength and resiliency and things that you're teaching your children, you know, as they're watching you go through this too, you're paying it forward to the next generation in that way as well. Yeah. I hope that, I hope that I've done enough of the right things that my, my children look back and go, man, you know, that was a really hard time for all of us. And we made it, we made it together. You know, it wasn't without difficulty for sure. We did have some moments that were very hard for all of us, but I, I tell the kids, the one reason that I did not give up and there were, there were some moments where I was like, man, I just, I don't know if this is worth it anymore. Like to continue to try to walk and stuff was Mm -hmm. that I felt that if my kids saw mom give up, that at some point in their future life, that would give them permission that they Mm -hmm. could give up. And when I kept reminding myself of that, I I was like, there's no way I cannot give my kids that excuse. I can't Mm -hmm. do it. Yeah, that, that's great. That's a wonderful perspective. I know when I was at my low point and I was struggling with depression, which really kind of poisons the way you think, yeah. but I would have thoughts like, oh, my family would be better off without me, which is a total lie. I, yeah. I, like I, I think it. of yeah. that now and I'm like, how could I have ever thought that? But I did, you know, I, my, my mind was broken and sick at the time. And, and I had those kind of thoughts and, uh, you know, that I would, it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to die or to hurt myself, but I, my son was in heaven and I just wanted to be with him. And yeah. I thought if I'm with Jesus, I won't have this suffering. So, um, you know, I don't know if that counts as suicidal thoughts, but it was just like, like you said, I just wanted to give up. I just wanted to quit yeah. fighting for a normal life. I, do, just, can you relate to any of those experiences? Or Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's just a, so much pain and sorrow that is inside of you. And it's, it's so big and heavy that you're like, man, I'm just, I'm getting tired of carrying this. And that's kind of the the thought process. And I, I mean, I was a roller coaster of ups and downs, especially my husband and I got to understand that every time I would have surgery somewhere around like four to six weeks afterwards, I was going to hit a low point. I mean, it was almost guaranteed that that was going to happen. And once we recognized that we were able to like kind of form a plan and get in our heads that, okay, you know how to get out of this. So let's work on this. Let's not let it consume us and try to be proactive. And then, I mean, it may take a while. I mean, there were times where I'm like, I was there for weeks and then slowly I would start to be able to climb out of that rut. And I'm like, I can breathe again. Oh my gosh, I can breathe again. And still to this day, 10 years later, the only time that I really get like that is if I'm having such a bad flare up that by my fifth or sixth day of that, that pain that is just unrelenting, I start to feel low, but I have to recognize this is why I'm feeling like this and it will go away. It will ease and you will get to be the person that you were before the the last seven days, but it's, um, you have to have a realistic approach and you have to be your own best motivator. You have to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, just having the awareness, you know, to recognize that and, and then to know that that happens and to be able to kind of power through that low point and to hope when you don't really feel like hoping 
an experience I can relate to is, uh, you know, we have eight kids. And so I went through labor a lot, <laughs> but yeah. always when I would get to transition, it's like right near the end, like baby's about to come, but I would just say, I quit. I can't do this. I would get really down, really discouraged and emotional and say, this baby's never going to be born and, you know, say all <laughs> kinds of dramatic non-true things. And, you know, my husband was just very calm and he would just talk me off the edge, you know, and he would, it didn't really even matter to me what he said. Yeah. He just talked to me in a positive way and it, he would say outlandish things, but I, I believed every word of it of like, oh yeah, you know, it's our right. first baby. And, and he was like, oh, you know, the baby's going to be born in an hour or something. He didn't have any clue, but it didn't right. matter to me. It was encouraging. But it time. was encouraging. Right. And you know, something you just said, um, when you are in those low moments, everything is dramatic mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter what it is. Like it's so dramatic. And you're thinking, that is just the silliest thing to make mm -hmm. such a big deal out of, but just everything at that point feels big. Yeah. Everything feels overwhelming. I, yeah. I recently used that analogy with my husband and I can't now remember what was going on in life. Something was chaotic and I was overreacting to something. And I'm like, it's like, I, I feel like I'm in transition again. I just need you to give me a pep talk. And he's like, oh, okay. That's what, you know, when you recognize what's needed, then it's easier to, to move forward. When you realize that Absolutely. the issue is not really the issue, there's a different issue and let's deal but with that. But both of you recognizing that is what makes it work. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Or being able to say to the other one, hey, this is what's happening. And then they, rec they go, oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> Getting that teamwork together. Because when we don't recognize that, then we can just get in this downward spiral of, Right. And you're clashing. Fussing about issues that aren't the real issue. And that's kind of a no win losing situation. Yes. So um, how much of your journal wound up then contributing to your book? All of it. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. I just, um, I basically went through the timeline and before I started speaking, I started blogging because that was, I was terrified of being a public speaker. I, I, I didn't want to talk about it out loud, but I also don't like being the center of attention. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I can hide behind a blog and um, do it that way. So I would take my journal entries and I would just make a short blog out of it. And because my community kept saying, you know, Carrie, people need to hear the lessons that you're learning. We don't see this part of it. And mm -hmm nobody's talking about anything. So people are feeling alone. So that's when I started sharing. So then I would take those blog posts and expand on them in my book. And that's what my book came out of. And I only wrote about the first year of my recovery because it was just, it was too hard for me to keep going back there. And I, I was exhausted. And, and I said, okay, this is it. My first book is only going to be about that first year. And it, it's yeah. very short. It's only like 130 pages. Um, so that, that is basically my book is my journal. Yeah. Well, that's a lot in one year that you went yeah. through. So I'm sure there's a lot there. I started reading the excerpt on Amazon and I'm like, Ooh, this is really good. So I'm going to go buy it and, uh, we'll put the link in the show notes and hopefully oh, listeners will go that. get it too. Again, it's facing life head on healing with courage, gratitude, and attitude. I like that. Thank you. Um, and then another thing that I read that you're doing is about advocacy for um, distracted drivers. Yeah, or yeah. Any, yeah, any kind of distracted driving. Yeah. yeah, so tell us a little bit more about that. It is, I, even though I was involved in a drunk driving collision, I, I advocate against any kind of distracted driving. And it's, it's something that is obviously very close to my heart because... 
everybody else in that car crash that night was doing everything right. You know, everybody had their seatbelts on. We were all going the speed limit. Nobody was on their phone. And I, I just feel that it, it's so easy to stop something like this from happening just by making a simple choice and, and like, instead of just saying, it's not going to happen to me and it's only one time type thing. I have been in one car crash in my life. I had never even been in a fender bender Mm -hmm. and it was this one. So my one time of it happening was extreme and that can happen to anybody because I worked in the healthcare field before this. And uh, I took care of these type of patients, these, these victims, and you know, it can happen to you. You 100% know it can happen to you, but you still think, but it always happens to somebody else. Mm -hmm. It's never going to happen to me. So even though I was in, in that mindset of, I know it can happen, but it's really not ever going to. And then, I mean, just like they say in a blink of an eye, it happens and you have to accept that it's going to happen at that time. And you just, you know, you pray at that moment that you're going to come out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, that's just true about human nature. <laughs> we think it won't be us or it won't be that bad. Uh, but you know, it, yeah. it, it could happen to anybody. Do you think, and I, you know, I don't know if there's statistics or whatever, but I'm just wondering it, these day and age, it seems like there's more problem with people like texting and driving than drunk driving. I realize they're both, you know, negative, both very important topics, but uh, do you think that now uh, being distracted with phones by driving has even superseded drunk driving or? I do. I really do because it is much more accessible. I mean, people have their phones with them at all times and, you know, we just don't feel like we can ignore whatever is, is on that phone. And, and, I, I don't, what is that? There's a setting that you can put your phone on, like, um, do not disturb or something Mm -hmm. like that, because I am afraid that because I've had this happen to me that I will get a call that I will miss. That is an emergency. And that may have made me paranoid, but I don't like, if I get a text, I don't ever answer it whenever Mm -hmm. I am driving. So it's something that you have to make a habit of. You just have to tell yourself it can wait, whatever it is, it can wait until either I can pull over or, you know, I get to where I'm going, but, um, it's just something that I think it's just the accessibility and that we have it all the time that texting and driving or, um, you know, even getting on the phone and driving it's, it's superseded everything. I think, I think it needs to be just a thing like wear your seatbelt you know, secure your phone. But part of the problem I have is because I use my phone to navigate when I don't know where I'm going. So I need the volume up and I need it where I can see it. (laughs) And so I do the other thing. Traveling so much. I need that GPS to be able, and I have, um, I have, you know, got myself one of those holders because my car doesn't have the um, navigation on the screen yet, but I do put it up there to where I can just glance over at it or, you know, hear it. But ne- like, and, and even if I see a text pop up on there now, I'm like, okay, I'll get to them later. I need to concentrate. One, I don't know where I'm going and two, I'm driving. So Right. <laughs> yes. Two dangerous things. Yes. Yes. So a couple of weeks ago, I had a guest on the show that was talking about living stress-free. And that was one of his top things was with not just with phones, but with computers or email or anything of just not feeling that pressure of, I must respond to this person now. 
And yeah. I think because we are accessible 24 seven now, we feel like we have some responsibility to respond immediately, but we don't. And even just since having that conversation with that guest, you know, I've, I've noticed myself when I get a message and I'm like, but, but I need to reply. I know. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what, really? I don't, this can wait till after family time or after, you know, whatever it is I'm yeah. doing. I don't have it's all to a succumb. Perspective. It's a mindset to be able yeah. to change that. We're so used to instant gratification that mm-hmm. we don't make ourselves pause anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. I think about, you know, old school times when the phone was connected to the wall, <laughs> you know, if you were away from home or you were in the bathroom or whatever, you didn't answer it and right. left a message or they called back and it was fine. And the world continued to spin. And it did, didn't it? Yes. Yes. And I was like, oh no, if I miss a text message, the world's going to crumble. But well, thank you so much for sharing your incredible story with us today. It's very, very powerful and so many different avenues to go with that. And you've shared so much with us that I know will be encouraging to our listeners. Can you tell them where they can find you online and how they can connect with you further? Yes, absolutely. So my main contact is my website that is carryportel.com. And then I am on Facebook, just my name, Carrie Portel, and it's national speaker. Instagram is probably my other big one and it's CP underscore STY. And that's because my blog is called stronger than yesterday. Mm -hmm. And then I do have a pretty good YouTube following. It's mostly ag over there, but that's probably my third biggest one. Yes. Okay. Excellent. And I will put those links in the show notes for our listeners and um, definitely recommend you guys connect with Carrie because she has so many more gems to share than we have time to cover right now. But thank you very much for being with us today. This is really blessed me a lot. Thank you. I I appreciate you allowing me to share. Mm -hmm. Definitely. You have been listening to Resilient Life Hacks with Liz Myers. The opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by the guests of this show are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of Elizabeth or Resilient Life Hacks Ministries. To learn more and download your free guide to Liz's top 20 Resilient Life Hacks, go to resilientlifehacks.com. Subscribe now so you never miss the life hacks you need to live the life you want.